This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 7 As you may or may not be aware, depending on how long you've been listening to this particular podcast, we have an irregular tradition of doing these Lost Episode things. Incidentally, did you know that tradition and treason come from the same Latin word? It's true. They both come from traditio, a verb which means to surrender, give over, or hand off. Weird, huh? Well, it became tradition because traditio also meant to teach in the sense that it was knowledge being given over to someone. And traditions are things you are taught by your culture or society to observe. See? As for treason, that's a little trickier. Treason's modern definition of crimes against the state originated in 1303 in a work on moral philosophy called Handling Sin by Robert Manning Brune. Though, if you're going to go hunt that down, remember it was written in Middle English, and therefore handling and sin were spelled with Y's instead of I's. And sin has an extra N and a silent E at the end. But it's still handling sin and not like handling sinny or siny or whatever. The meaning was incorporated into a 1351 English law called the Treason Act, which defined treason as, among other things, adhering to the enemies of the king or giving said enemies aid and comfort. In the Middle English sense, to adhere meant to follow or to be part of a group, as in the word adherent. And aid and comfort was a sort of idiom of the time, and comfort in that sense meant giving encouragement or incitement. In essence, treason was surrendering or giving over to the enemy. See? By the way, that same law ended up in the U.S. Constitution. In Article 3, the Constitution describes treason against the United States as levying war against the country or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. But we digress. The point is, we occasionally and semi-regularly surrender ourselves to these so-called lost episodes. And this is the seventh time we've done that. We think. We're pretty sure the producer will check that before he records and mixes and publishes this episode. That's what he's there for. Yeah, it's, it's fine. And these episodes contain a hodgepodge of miscellaneous bits and pieces that we wanted to include in previous episodes, but which we had to cut for one reason or another. And that reason was usually to do with word count, time constraints, or a refusal by our producer to pronounce certain words. Speaking of pronunciation, we have a brief correction and apology. And when we say we, we mean specifically we who write the script. Him, the angry GM. In a recent episode, I included a note about how to pronounce the word duchy. I instructed our producer to pronounce it as dookie. That was incorrect. The correct pronunciation for a realm ruled by a duke is a duchy, not a dookie. I apologize. In the future, I will remember that our producer needs no help mispronouncing things. He can do it himself. Uh, which is, of course, a load of dookie. And with that out of the way, on with Lost Episode 7. Since we're already on the subject of word derivations and we resisted the urge to explain the origins of hodgepodge and trivia... Let's start with a little etymological fun fact that didn't make it into our episode about the solstice. Actually, let's do five etymological fun facts. Let's talk about how the seasons got their modern English names. First, summer. 
Summer has been called Summer for a long time. Or rather, Sumor or Semher or Samhar. And that appears to have come from Old English, which in turn came from the Proto-Germanic languages. However, it is also very similar to an Old Irish word, which means togetherness. And we know that the folks of Ireland used that word to refer to the warmest season of the year because of their summer-ending festival, Samhain, which means summer's end. That's weird, because we have two different origins, one Germanic and one Goidelic, and linguists aren't sure how to reconcile that or who learned what word from who. Spring used to be called Lenten, or simply Lent. That came from the Germanic word meaning long. Linguists think it referred to the lengthening of the days throughout spring, but that word took on special significance as Christianity came to dominate Europe. By the 11th century, Lent was being used to refer to the Lenten Holy Days, a period during which observant Christians would fast, pray, and do penance in preparation for the observance of Easter. By the 14th century, Lent lost its springtime meaning and referred solely to the religious holiday, except in certain agricultural circles. At the same time, people started to refer to the season as the springing time, because plants were springing up from the ground. In the 15th century, this got shortened to springtime, and by the 16th century it was just called spring. We're not sure about fall or autumn, and I don't mean that we here at the Word of the Week didn't bother to look it up. I mean, linguists and historians aren't entirely sure where either of the two names for the third season of the year actually came from. Obviously, fall is a shortening of fall of the leaf. That isn't in doubt. But who started calling it that, and when did it get shortened? No one seems to know. Likewise, autumn seems to have come through French from Latin, and the Latin word autumnus seems to have come from an Etruscan word that means to increase. Why? Who knows? But we do know that before the nickname fall of the leaf, and before the French-Latin autumn was adopted, the English name for the season was harvest. At least that makes sense. Winter comes from the Germanic languages. Specifically, it comes from the word ventrus, which seems to mean white or wet, depending on which source you read. And that name pretty much stuck around. The bonus fact is the origin for the word season itself. That word comes from the French saison, which came from the Latin saisonum. The original word referred to the act of sowing seeds, and it initially referred to the parts of the year when you sowed seeds, which seems obvious but it gradually expanded to refer to the general breaking down of the year into four climactic partitions. By the way, the word actually comes from an older Latin word, which means to ripen or to bear seeds, which is why it also came to refer to the act of sprinkling things like crushed plant seeds on your food to make it taste better. Let's stick with the solstice episode a moment, because we really, really wanted to share some fun winter myths from Norse mythology. But they didn't quite fit into the episode, because they really didn't blame the winter on anything. They were only tangentially related to winter. So now is our chance. See, in Norse mythology, there are two particular figures who are strongly associated with winter and the darkness of the year. The first is the giantess Skadi. Now, the giants in Norse mythology were generally seen as representatives of primal natural forces as opposed to the gods who imposed civilization and brought order to the world. But as giants go... Scotty wasn't terribly bad. She dwelled at the top of a dark, cold mountain where the snow never melted. She was a huntress, and she used peculiar devices to allow her to walk on the snow and to glide down slopes. Thus, she is credited with teaching the Norse people how to make snowshoes and skis. But she's most famous 
for her legal separation from her husband. The story begins when a giant named Theazi kidnaps the goddess Edun, and Odin and the other gods organize a big old posse to get her back. The gods killed Theazi, rescued Edun, and decided to have a big party. But who should show up raring for a fight but the winter hunter Scotty? And she was a bit miffed over the death of Theazi, her father. Fortunately, Odin quickly talked her down from seeking violent revenge and offered to make reparations. And those reparations came in three parts. First, Odin cut out Theazi's eyes and threw them into the sky where they became stars. Second, Odin agreed that the gods would give Scotty a good laugh. Seriously. Now, the gods tried everything, but Scotty was grim at the best of times, and given that she was attending a celebratory feast commemorating the murder of her father, these were not the best of times. Scotty wouldn't crack a smile for anything. No amount of how many Jotun does it take to light a torch jokes would get her lips to so much as twitch. And then... Loki had an idea. He tied one end of a rope to a mighty goat, and he tied the other end to his, uh, to his, you know, his, uh, the sense, the, to his male parts. And they had a huge, painful, to Loki, tug of war. And that did it. Scotty thought it was hilarious that Loki collapsed against her, screaming in agony and massaging his swollen, you know. Finally, Scotty was allowed to marry any god she chose. Now, she wanted to marry the hottest, sexiest of all the gods, Baldur, Odin's son. But Odin imposed one condition on her. She had to choose the god based only on seeing his feet and ankles. So all the gods hid from sight and showed their feet and ankles, and Scotty picked out the finest pair of feet she could. But it turned out to be Njord, god of ships and the sea. Scotty and Njord get married and move in together. First, the couple tries to live in Scotty's home, but Njord quickly becomes lonely and depressed in the bitterly cold mountains. And the wolves keep him up at night, with their baying and yapping and knocking over the couple's trash cans. Then, they move to Njord's home, the place of ships by the sea, but Scotty can't stand the brightness and warmth and the sound of seabirds and hammering and sawing of shipwrights making ships at all hours of the day and night. Each frustrated by the inability to sleep at night, among other things, in the other's home, they agreed to live separately. The end. Anticlimactic, yes, but it does have that Loki tug-of-war thing, which, frankly, makes us crack a smile, too. That story does actually tie into another figure associated with winter and darkness, and his story is a lot better. It doesn't involve genital torture. Baldur wasn't the only son of Odin. He had a brother, Hoder. Hoder was blind and sort of gullible, and he was associated with darkness, cold, and winter. In fact, he was the actual god of winter. Scotty was just a giantess who liked winter a lot. Hoder wasn't very popular, but everyone loved Baldur. Because Baldur was incredibly gorgeous. That's why Scotty wanted him. But Baldur had a problem. He kept having these horrible nightmares, and no one knew what they meant. So Odin descended into the underworld and consulted with the Norns, the Fates, and they explained that Baldur was probably just having a hard time sleeping because he was going to die horribly in the very near future, and Hoder was going to be involved somehow. Odin was pretty troubled by this, and so was Frigg, Baldur's mother. 
So Frigg wandered around the world and got absolutely everything to swear an oath to never harm Baldur. And we mean everything. Snakes, wolves, rocks, swords, everything. Well, almost everything. She forgot to ask the mistletoe bush to never hurt her son. But what the heck? It's only mistletoe, right? Of course, Loki, the chaotic trickster who was always ruining everything, he finds out. And he makes a mistletoe spear and holds onto it for just the right moment. Meanwhile, Baldur is basically invincible. Nothing can hurt him because of the sacred oaths. Hit him with a sword? Nothing. Throw a rock at him? Nothing. Spear? Nope. Put a snake down his shirt? Nada. Throw him off a cliff into the gaping maw of a raging volcano? He can't be hurt. And he's showing off. He invites all the gods to take their best shot. And nothing will hurt him. Meanwhile, blind, stupid Hoder is standing there and he can't play because he's blind. So Loki walks up and says, Here, Hoder, take this spear which I have made randomly out of some bush or other, never mind exactly what, and take a throw. Come on, I'll guide your hand. Hoder throws the spear and... That's the end of Baldur. Odin takes it well. And by well, we mean that he goes off and makes love to the giantess Rinder, specifically to conceive a son to kill Hoder. The kid, Vali, appears on the scene and the day after he's born, he kills Hoder with an arrow made of mistletoe. Now that's a climax, right? Speaking of mythology and weather, there was an interesting story we wanted to recount in our Typhoon episode that we just couldn't fit in. In that episode, we discussed the Japanese gods of wind and storms, Raijin and Fujian. But you probably noticed a glaring omission from that episode. That's right. We never discussed the spy thriller video game franchise by Hideo Kojima, Metal Gear. I know, how could we leave that out? It's so obvious. For those not in the know, let us explain. The Metal Gear series is a series of video games designed by Japanese game designer Hideo Kojima and published by Konami. Now, we're not going to address the upset in the series that was created by Kojima's ousting from Konami or the very recent release of a new and very different installment in the series called Metal Gear Survive. But it is worth discussing the history of the massive franchise. The games take place in a sort of alternate history version of Earth and involve the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union and a succession of proxy battles between the powers before, during, and after the Cold War. The games are billed as tactical espionage action and are focused on stealth, infiltration, and reconnaissance. And they involve a lot of the sort of technological buzzwords that you'd expect from spy thrillers in the modern era and the not-too-distant future. Nanomachines, cyborgs, robots, super soldiers with psychic abilities, you know what we mean. To most people, the series began in 1998 with the release of Metal Gear Solid. This told the story of super spy Solid Snake Yes, that was his name. Infiltrating the complex of a rogue military group called Foxhound, led by his brother, Liquid Snake, in an effort to stop them from activating a giant mech called Metal Gear. And the game became famous for two reasons. First, it was highly cinematic. It used a number of long, detailed cutscenes and dialogues to tell a complex spy thriller story. That became a hallmark of the series. Second, it was also one of the first games to combine stealthy gameplay with environmental interactions to allow the player to use their environment to evade enemies, draw them into traps, or kill them without drawing attention. 
Many, many games and many different franchises would refine those stealth and environmental mechanics over the years until the stealth action game became a genre unto itself. But Metal Gear Solid wasn't really the start of the series. Kids like me remember a different start to the series, a terrible start. In 1987, Konami released Metal Gear for the Nintendo Entertainment System. The game told the story of Solid Snake Super Spy infiltrating a jungle military base, evading soldiers and security, and taking down a giant mech known as Metal Gear. Except that Metal Gear didn't actually appear in the game. And the game was slow, buggy, ridiculously difficult, and poorly translated to the point of being inscrutable. And then in 1990, there was a sequel called Snake's Revenge. The thing is, though, that Metal Gear was a port. That is, it was a translation of an existing game from one computer system to another. And it was a very bad port. It was not faithful to the original, and the game's original creator was not involved. See, in 1987, programmer Hideo Kojima created a stealthy infiltration game about a mercenary spy sneaking into an African military base to disable a nuclear-armed giant robot mecha tank. And it was released for the MSX-2, a Microsoft home computer that was sold in Japan, the Soviet Union, and the Middle East. And the game was very popular due to its focus on stealth and infiltration, rather than on pure action. You had to avoid drawing the attention of the guards, and if they became alerted, you had to evade them until they calmed down and lifted the alert. The thing is, though, that that revolutionary bit of gameplay wasn't at all what Kojima intended. Kojima was trying to make an action game, but he ran into a problem with the number of objects the computer could display on the screen at one time and the speed with which it could animate those things. He just couldn't get it to allow him to have more than a very small number of slow-moving projectiles on the screen at one time without ruining the game's performance. He just couldn't have the player and a bunch of guards shooting at each other. It wouldn't work. So he solved the problem by making that sort of action a failure state. That is, he designed a game that discouraged a player from getting into firefights in the first place. The player was too delicate and couldn't win a shootout against multiple armed opponents. But the player could sneak around. And that was the real birth of the Metal Gear series. But what does this have to do with Japanese storm gods? Well, nothing. But people sure think it has something to do with them. Just like most people don't know the true origins of the Metal Gear series these days, most people also think it has something to do with lightning gods and mulberry bushes. So, one of the features of the Metal Gear series are larger-than-life enemies who have psychic or technological superpowers. And why not? It's a cool way to do boss fights. And Metal Gear is known for its memorable boss enemies. Among them is the main boss from the third installment of the game's main series, Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater. The game was different for a number of reasons that aren't really important. But the boss of the game, and a recurring character in the series, was a Russian super-soldier named Colonel Yevgeny Borisovich Volgin, aka Thunderbolt. And he had the psychic ability to manipulate electricity, electrokinesis. But, as a side effect of his ability, he was prone to accidentally getting struck by lightning during thunderstorms, and he would even suffer painful electrical discharges during rainstorms. Whenever the character was caught in a rainstorm in the game, he would mutter the phrase, Kuwabara, Kuwabara. It was so prevalent in the game that the American translation team that helped localize Metal Gear Solid 3 for U.S. audiences nicknamed him Colonel Kuwabara, 
Now, Japanese people know that Kuwabara Kuwabara is a word against being struck by lightning. Supposedly, if you say it during a thunderstorm, you won't get hit by lightning. It's like a knock-on-wood superstition in Japanese culture, right? And Kuwabara means mulberry field, a field where mulberry bushes grow. And that has led to the popular story that the phrase derives its origin from a Chinese myth which says that mulberry bushes are never struck by lightning. Except that's not really where the phrase comes from at all, at least not according to some Japanese scholars. There was a beloved Japanese political figure, scholar, poet, and translator named Sugawara Michizane. In 886 CE, he began a political career as the governor on the island of Shikoku in the modern Kagawa prefecture. By 901, he was serving in the imperial court. But a rival convinced the emperor that he was adhering to and giving aid and comfort to the emperor's enemies. He was banished for treason, and then, according to legend, he died soon thereafter when he was struck by lightning. Immediately thereafter, again, according to legend, there was a rash of calamities across Japan. Fires, floods, storms, violent deaths, the whole shebang. And it was thought to be the work of Sugawara's vengeful spirit, Eventually, Sugawara's name was posthumously restored to honor, and shrines were built in his honor, and all the calamities stopped. But, again according to legend, before his spirit was placated, people tried to protect themselves from disasters by claiming to belong to Sugawara's family homeland. Basically, they would hear thunder or smell smoke and say, Hey, don't hurt me. I'm from your hometown. I'm your friend. And what was Sugawara's family's ancestral homeland called? Mulberry Fields. Kuwabara. And speaking of our episode about solstices and typhoons, there is one little bit of Greek mythology we wanted to bring up in those episodes related to a well-known fantasy monster. Well, two fantasy monsters. But that discussion sparked a mysterious question about two monsters with the same but different names, with some of the same but different powers, and with very different appearances. To answer that question, though, we'll need a whole episode. So come back next week when a bit of a lost episode becomes a found episode. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 